Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of England, episode 95, The History of Medieval Europe, part 3. It's not time quite yet for the results of our poll on the death of Edward II. I said I'd give it a couple of weeks, so a couple of weeks I shall give it. So, I thought before we went any further, it would be good to catch up on the European context. After all, we've reached the reign of a man in Edward III who spent a fair percentage of his time driven by affairs on the continent. So this week and next, that's what we're going to do. I look back, it was in fact almost exactly a year ago that I posted the second of my History of Europe podcasts. Seems like only yesterday. Anyway, when we left, the baby Frederick II had been elected King of the Romans in 1196, which was the normal anteroom for the job of Holy Roman Emperor. One of the most shocking events of the entire medieval age had occurred, the capture and sacking of Constantinople by the Latins in 1204, led by the completely unscrupulous old man, Enrico Dandolo. And as a consequence, for the first time in the medieval world, the East was held by a Latin Empire and a Greek one, and the Roman Empire had been fatally wounded. Meanwhile in Spain, the Reconquista was well underway, and only the Kingdom of Granada in the south remained to the Moors. Let's start with a little economic and social background, and you'll be relieved to know that it's all going to be reassuringly familiar. The 13th century was for Europe, just as it was for England, a time of plenty and growth, with the population continuing to expand. Unsurprisingly, of course, it's the same basic climatic shift, the medieval warm period that changes somewhere between 1300 and 1350-ish to a colder climate. For most of Europe, the same process of agricultural expansion was going on, a process of what you might call internal and external expansion. 
Internally, forest and brushland were cleared, heathland and moors ploughed up. Marshes were drained and sea walls or levees built. The Netherlands is a great example of this, of course. In Holland and Friesland, every village was organised to defend the sea walls against damage and floods. The tradition there is that this legacy of communal work is what led to their love of freedom and the long struggles for self-rule that we'll see there starting from, well, pretty much now as it happens. Despite all this busying around, land was still scarce, and so colonisation went external, and we see migrations happening all over the shop. In the south, the French crossed the Pyrenees and the Pyriancles to help the Christian Spaniards in the Reconquista. German miners emigrated to Sweden to mine copper and tin, but the big one is the eastward migration of Germans and Netherlanders into Eastern Europe, into Prussia, Poland and Hungary. Sometimes this was peaceful, workers invited by the local Slavic princes. But sometimes it was violent, with German princes driving out the local inhabitants and bringing their own rights and privileges with them. Despite this general spreading out, population in Eastern Europe remained relatively sparse. So let me plaster health warnings all over this next set of figures. All those qualifications about the danger of relying on population figures absolutely apply here. But one rather interesting estimate has it that the number of inhabitants in Poland was about two to three people per square mile. You can compare this to England, which had about three to four per square mile on the same workings out. So that sounds like a significant difference. But it's also interesting to look at population density in other areas. So here we go. Statistics on the way, not traditionally a good idea for podcasts. So, pens poised? So, we just had Poland at 2 to 3 inhabitants per square mile, and then England at 3 to 4. Italy. Now, Italy's ratio is about 9 to 10 people per square mile, so much more densely populated, and then 11 to 12 people per square mile for France and Germany. You might be amused to know that the UK's current population density is 650 people per square mile and France has 289 people per square mile. So you can visualise the emptiness and quietness of the Middle Ages. Though, of course, you have to factor in the lack of towns of modern size. Despite the empty spaces in the east, we get the same phenomenon as in England. I.e. around 1300 the limits of expansion seems to have been reached. As growth and expansion slowed, similar changes between lord and peasant began to appear, a greater reliance on rents, and a gradual decline in their feudal, servile labour relationship. In England, we've talked about the steady development of towns, but noted that the only towns that really competed on a European scale was London, at something like thirty to 40,000. In other parts of Europe, Paris was 80,000 strong, and in Germany there were several towns like Cologne that were over 30,000. But it's Flanders and Italy, particularly northern Italy, where the development of trade and manufacturing went hand in hand with large urban populations. Bruges was over 35,000, Ghent over 50. In Italy, Pisa and Palermo were close to 50,000, and in Florence, Milan, Venice and Genoa by the mid-14th century, you have the medieval equivalent of megacities, 
Some of them 100,000 or maybe even more. One of the trends this partly reflects is the appearance of a bit of specialisation. This seems so normal to us now that certain areas will specialise in certain types of industry, but it's a pretty new concept in medieval times. It's just a start, but wine from Burgundy, Gascony in the Rhineland, wool from England, cloth from Flanders and northern Italy began to point towards the future. The other exciting development was the growth of credit. We've talked a bit about this, have we not, in England, with the Riccardi, Frescobaldi, Edward I and all that lot. But below the royal level, there's a quiet and hugely significant revolution going on. I don't know about you, but one of the fundamental gripes bred into me from a very early age was the idea that producing things is good, money men are evil and a little bit useless. Well, that's all very well, but history pretty much proves that these things have to go hand in hand. So in the Middle Ages, paying for anything bigger than a fork handle was a complete pain in the backside. So, when a merchant sitting in Florence contemplated visiting the all-important trade fair in Champagne, the thought of taking massive and heavy barrels of coins across the continent with all the perils along the way, quite apart from the schlep, was enough to bring our merchant out in spots. And then some bright spark, who happened to have an outlet in, say, Champagne and Florence, had a good idea. Just take this note, he said, rather than barrels of coins. And then, when you get to Champagne, give this note to our man there, and he'll give you the cash there. And so the idea of banking and credit started. Now, we've covered a lot of this in England, so I won't go on, but it's Italy that leads the way here. One of the things that makes medieval Europe so different to us now is its essential unity. Now, I realise that on one level, this seems like an odd statement. After all, for the last thousand years or more, we've basically been listening to the various inventive ways people found to beat seven bells out of each other. A procession of constant petty squabbles. So that's all true, but at the heart of it is an essential sense of belonging around church and Christianity. The Pope and the Emperor might argue and squabble about who the leader of Christendom should be. Kings might have the same argument about clarifying the relevant job descriptions and roles and responsibilities, but at the heart is the idea of Christendom, around one holy, Catholic and Aspatolic church. I can hear Sunday mornings as I speak. In our period, we'll begin to see this seriously challenged and watch as the papacy goes into one of its most truly miserable periods. And it starts with the massive challenge from the same Hohenstaufen family that has caused them so much grief with Barbarossa. This time, the challenge came in the form of Frederick II, grandson of Barbarossa. When we left the history of Europe all that time ago, the papacy had come to the end of a long and exhausting struggle with Barbarossa, it had seen in Innocent III one of its most successful and far-sighted popes who had been able to capitalise on Barbarossa's essential failure to prove the supremacy of emperor over papacy, and who understood the dangers facing the church. So at a famous council, the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215, Innocent made sure the church understood and tried to drive forward a period of reform to get rid of feasting, hawking, drunkenness, sex, nepotism, all that stuff i.e. to establish that if the church wanted to have leadership, it needed to show leadership, a moral leadership at that. 
Now, he was helped in this by the basics of German politics, the struggle of the Welfs, supporters of the family of Henry the Lion of Saxony, against the Ghibellines, the supporters of Barbarossa and his descendants in the family of Hohenstaufen. He was also helped by the fact that Barbarossa's son, Henry VI, died relatively young, which left a wealth as emperor, and a very young son, i.e. Frederick. Frederick was the son of Constance of Sicily, and therefore not just the son of the emperor, but the heir to the kingdom of Sicily. He's born into a more than slightly scary situation, the focus of a cosmic struggle between the forces of church and state. In this situation, Constance, the medieval version of Sarah Connor, did the sensible thing. She declared that Sicily and the Empire were completely different things, and that although little Fred had been declared Emperor, he didn't want it, and someone else could have it. She was trying to keep him alive and safe in Sicily. Frederick's childhood was many things, but safe wasn't one of them. In 1200, when Frederick was six, Philip of Swabia invaded Naples, and by 1202 he had control of Frederick, and really, it's a wonder the lad survived. But survive he did and no one would ever say of Frederick that he didn't make the most of it. So somehow Frederick survived and managed to come of age and claim the throne of Sicily. In Frederick you have one of those unforgettable figures of medieval history who stands out from an already colourful cast. Although his life's mission was to re-establish imperial domination over Christendom, he was a child of Sicily with all that entailed which at the time meant that he was an exotic blend of Islamic Eastern potentate and Western Christian monarch, rather than meaning that he had any connection with shady drug deals or a tendency to do Marlon Brando impressions. Wherever he went, he was accompanied by a harem in the Islamic style. His most faithful soldiers were his Muslim soldiers from the south of the island, and again always with him. In his glittering entourage was a menagerie of animals sent to him from far and wide, but particularly from the east. He wrote his own book, The Art of Hunting with Hawks. He was quite simply a one-off, uncopyable. It wasn't just his lifestyle. After all, women, entourage, display, these are the bread of life to your average medieval monarch. No, there's more to it than that. There was something dangerous about Frederick II. He gathered around him the greatest thinkers of the age, and then asked some difficult questions, related by Ibn Sabine in his Sicilian questions. Questions such as, for example, how to explain Muhammad's words, the heart of the believer is between the two fingers of God, or exactly how many abysses are there in hell. He was sceptical, questioning, unconventional. He was a threat to the established order of things, and all the forces lined up against him seemed grey and just a little bit dull. And so it's terribly appropriate that he acquired the soubriquet Stupor Mundi. In that phrase there is wonder, but there's also bewilderment, and that's Frederick for you. A free thinker, carnal, dangerous. Now there's no doubt that Frederick is on my list of historical figures I'd like to go down the pub with, but it's equally clear that he was no angel. The stories about the way he mistreated his Christian wives was probably true. The story of him sealing a man in a barrel and setting men to watch to see if the soul could be seen to leave the body when he died, was probably not true. But it does reflect how people thought he might like spending his downtime. Sir Frederick struck men with awe and wonder, which had its good sides, but also its bad. Even his supporters, full of amazement, wonder and awe, were not full of love or trust. 
Unlike his predecessors, Frederick's centre of gravity was very much in the south, in his beloved cosmopolitan Sicily. Sure, he wanted to keep Germany in the empire and would fight for that all his life. But Sicily was where the heart was. And for a while, he was remarkably successful in keeping all the pieces together. But essentially, he kept the empire by giving it away. Because he bought support from German princes by handing over to them the sinews of power. For example, in 1220, in order to get his son elected king of the Romans, he gave the ecclesiastical German princes, the archbishops of Mainz, Trier and Cologne, pretty much sovereign power in their territories. Fifteen years later, he got rid of that son and replaced him with another one, Conrad. And the price of that was giving up the same concessions to the lay magnates as well. And so when the balloon went up, the Germans really had no reason to be loyal to Frederick. He'd already given them everything he had. But it was Italy that was the key to Frederick's reign. Northeast Italy, or Lombardy, was the key. Just geographically, he couldn't keep his empire together without controlling it. And its trade was blossoming, and its wealth with it. Its love of independence grew at the same pace, unfortunately. So, back to the Welfs and the Ghibellines. The Lombard towns divided into two camps, of loyalty to emperor and resistance to imperial power. Meanwhile, the popes realised that if they allowed Frederick effective control of Lombardy, they would be in his pocket. But for over ten years, Frederick managed to keep the Pope and the Ghibellines' towns apart, by taking the cross and vowing to retake Jerusalem. But then in 1227, finally, his repeated failure to actually do anything with the cross finally allowed the Pope to excommunicate him. Frederick duly left for the Holy Land and, quite remarkably, won Jerusalem for Christendom by negotiating with a troubled and divided Muslim world. Unfortunately, his triumph was viewed with enormous suspicion. It smelled of connivance and tricksiness to a Christendom that wanted the good honest billing of infidel blood. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. None of this clever, get-what-you-want-through-reasonable-discussion rubbish. It did, in the end, get Frederick's excommunication lifted, but he'd cashed in the Crusader chip, and that was a non-renewable resource. And by 1235, he'd had enough of using diplomacy to achieve his aims. He was all too wearing. At his diet or council at Mainz in 1235, 
he revoked the treaty Barbarossa had made giving concessions and independence to the Italian towns, and the result was war. The emperor and the Ghibelline towns versus the Welf towns and the Pope. Because the whole thing made the Popes choose sides, and that choice wasn't difficult to make. The whole occasion, like all the Hohenstaufen papal struggles, is fascinating stuff, well worth far more time than I've got here. The very stuff of high politics and war. Frederick won a massive victory over the Lombard League in 1237, which looked to have finished the whole affair, but then he went for broke, and he insisted on unconditional surrender when he could probably have negotiated a reasonable peace. And so a few cities held out, and slowly the tide turned. The Pope excommunicated Frederick again, and then declared a crusade against him, which is something of a delicious irony, is it not? Holy war against the Holy Roman Emperor. By 1245, the Pope had fled to Lyon to escape the Emperor and carried out the ultimate sanction, deposing the Emperor and having a successor elected in his place. But the coup de grace came in 1248, when the Emperor's cause was basically finished by the annihilation of his army before the walls of Parma, and although he fought on to the very last, by 1250 he was dead. With him died the last real hope of a united Holy Roman Empire. There were a few shenanigans to go. His bastard son Manfred, for example, made himself king in Sicily. His other son Conrad, fighting to be emperor in Germany. So then we had that odd episode where the Pope hawked his way around the courts of Europe, including Henry III's, looking for an ally to oust Manfred from Sicily. And finally, in 1266, Charles of Anjou had done his dirty work for him, and the Hohenstaufen were all over though the distinction between Guelph and Ghibelline lived on for a long time in the feuding of Italian city-states. The popes and the emperor were a pretty typical family, centuries of love and cooperation interspersed with vicious infighting and furious argument. But in the end, they were comprehensively divorced, and the emperor had died of a broken heart, just to stretch the metaphor. The heirs of the Bishop of Rome had vanquished the heirs of Otto the Great, and the popes had one. Or had they? Fifty years later, in 1292, Pope Nicholas IV died, and the College of Cardinals duly went to it to elect a successor. Now clearly you might think this was an important job, but you might be forgiven for thinking that they'd made something of a meal of it. Pope Nicholas himself had taken ten months to elect, and you'd have to ask why, two and a half years after Nicholas's death, there was still no Pope. Well, the College of Cardinals had other things on their mind, other than God and stuff. They were massively powerful men, and the College of Cardinals was a bare pit of political intrigue and power struggle. For centuries, the Curia had been the plaything of the Roman aristocracy, but now it was a battlefield between the Italians and the French for control of the papacy. But, eventually, the College of Cardinals pronounced, and in December 1294, they elected a man called Peter of Marune. Peter was the eleventh child of a family of peasants. He was quite clearly a deeply religious man. From the age of twenty he took the life of a hermit, living in a cave on a mountainside in Italy. He wasn't without a bit of get-up-and-go, it has to be said. He founded an order of monasteries, the Celestines, from his cave, and in 1294 sternly rebuked the cardinals for making such a hash of the election thing. But his election to Pope was quite extraordinary. 
He was 85 at the time, so hardly in the first flush of youth, hardly a thrusting, rising young exec. He was completely outside the world of cardinals and the working of the administration of the church. So I know what you're thinking. Why are you telling us all this? Because the election of Celestine was hailed at the time, not as a potty decision of a bunch of swivel-eyed loons, but with enormous enthusiasm. Because the church knew dimly that it had begun to lose its soul. Celestine was a genuinely holy man. Directed by God, his holiness would lead them all back into the light of certainty and truth. In fact, he led them nowhere, and it was predictably a disaster. The poor man had not an idea of how to deal with the administrative complexities of running such a massive organisation, let alone deal with the poisonous politics, and sadly, however holy he was, his ultimate master wasn't interested in helping out with the admin. As a result, Celestine became the first pope to resign, with interesting precedents for the recent papal resignation, of course. So, in fact, with the defeat of Frederick, the papacy was now entering into one of its very darkest periods. With the 13th century came the beginning of the end of the unity of Christendom and the certainty of a single shared religion that had permitted no deviation. In defeating Frederick, the church had been forced to strain every nerve and use every resource. It had become involved in a clearly political struggle, sending armies marching up and down Italy, entering into absurdities like declaring a crusade against a Christian monarch. After the death of Frederick, they then further dirtied their name with their efforts to rub out the Hohenstaufen completely, demanding vast sums from Henry III and Charles of Anjou to visit fire and destruction on the good people of Sicily. It's not what you expect from a pope. It wasn't just this, though. In Bulwer-Lytton's word, the pen is mightier than the sword, and the church now faced a much more subtle challenge, the insidious challenge of ideas. One source of these ideas was from universities, which were beginning to flourish in a number of centres in the 13th century, notably Paris and northern Italy. It presented the papacy with something of a problem. No university would flourish without freedom of thought, and so freedom of thought they duly practised. The papacy wasn't keen on freedom of thought. Such things led to stuff like the heresies of Peter Waldo and the Cathars, which had put the papacy in a really bad light as they'd burnt and destroyed to rub the heresy out. But while they could claim intellectual and theological superiority over a bunch of peasants and secular lords in southern France, it was more difficult to win an intellectual argument against the greatest minds of the day at Paris and Bologna. Another source of ideas was the growing interest in the writings of the ancients. The pagan ancients, that is. So let us take Aristotle, for example. Now, you may have a negative view of the man if you've heard that Aristotle, Aristotle was a bugger for the bottle, but in point of fact, in Aristotle, the West was presented with an incredibly impressive collection of writings, whose soundness seemed to be borne out by the evidence of the senses. And yet the chap was a pagan. And God had given him no help whatsoever, no divine revelations, nothing. Nothing but rational thought based on observation. And this was really, really inconvenient church-wise. Now, I have barely a nodding acquaintance with the works of Thomas Aquinas, but he has the reputation as one of the greatest thinkers of the medieval age. And on the face of it, Thomas was terribly helpful to the church in reconciling the apparently irreconcilable. 
Thomas saw no tension between rational thought and divine revelation. The idea that there had to be a cause for something led to a regression back somewhere to a prime mover. And we all know who the prime mover was going to be in the eyes of the church. In fact, while Thomas may have given Christianity and even mankind a great gift, it caused problems for a united anti-heretical Christendom. It legitimised rational thought and investigation within the church. It caused all kinds of complexities in areas that had once been simple. So, for example, Aristotle had said that man is a political animal. R. Thomas worked on this to argue against the traditional medieval view of government. The traditional medieval view of government was that government was restrictive. It was there to save men from their own sinfulness by stopping them from doing stuff. Thomas argues that man was a social and political animal, and therefore government was a good thing in itself, whose end was social well-being. Oh yes, good. But also a little inconvenient. For example... How was a crusader meant to deal with the statement that the government of the infidel ruler had a legitimate and lawful purpose? But most of all, by reconciling rational thought and divine revelation, he made rational thought far harder for the church to restrain. The challenge of ideas also came from within the church. So we've talked a bit about the friars, the Franciscans and the Dominicans. With their rules of genuine poverty these movements became immensely popular. It was far easier to love and respect men who possessed nothing, with whom the peasantry could identify, who appeared to be genuinely holy. Which is again great, but it did rather throw into hideously stark relief the contrast with the regular clergy. With their concubines and the richness of the bishops, the appalling venality of the cardinals, the political and temporal nature of the papacy, really those friars were making the rest look bad. All of this led to something of a hideous family row by the start of the 14th century. As their success grew, the Franciscans themselves had been presented with the same problem the church had faced all those centuries ago. It grew. It therefore needed to acquire buildings, organisation, use of money and so on. And when it did that, it began to eat its own spiritual liver, as it were. So you had two parties within the Franciscans. The conventuals, who said you had to move with the times, and the spirituals, who said you had to do no such thing. The original idea was the thing. Of course, the Pope tried to patch things up, but inevitably came down on the side of the conventuals. This included stamping as heresy the Franciscan belief that Christ and his disciples had no possessions. In the screaming hissy fit of the debate, further damage was done to the prestige and unity of the Church. By the end of the 13th century, then, the papacy was deeply embroiled in politics and in a world of changing ideas. It's easy to be cynical and overcritical about the 13th and 14th century papacy. There's no doubt that most of the popes thought they had to maintain their political independence to maintain spiritual leadership. This meant that they used their temporal resources in physical war. It also meant that, since their physical resources were limited, that they had to use their spiritual weapons to help the war effort. But let's take Sicily after the death of Frederick as an example of the absurdities they let themselves get into. So, as we said earlier, the popes hawked the right to the throne of Sicily around Europe until Charles of Anjou finally came up trumps. Charles was no angel either, though, 
and in 1282 you get an event called the Sicilian Vespers, where the good people of Sicily rose in revolt and threw Charles off the island in favour of Peter of Aragon. In the spring of 1282, as it happens, Pope Martin had assembled a great army, aimed for crusade in the east. And so we get the absurdity of a Pope diverting a crusade away from the east and holy places towards the threat of Peter of Aragon, the leader of a Christian nation. And while the Pope's political friends in France and Sicily struggled for control against the Pope's Christian enemies in Spain, in 1291 Acre, the final outpost in Outremer was taken. It's something of a mess. I don't want to labour the point, obviously, but let me just make sure that's absolutely clear. The leader of Christendom is excommunicating his own Christian monarchs and declaring crusades against them while the holy places fall to the Muslim world. So, back to that election of the hermit Peter of Moroni. His election as Celestine V was a despairing attempt to regain the papal soul and Christian certainty in the face of all those intellectual complexities. Celestine's failure after six months led to the arrival of his polar opposite, Boniface VIII. Like Innocent III and Gregory VII, Boniface VIII is one of the great figures of the medieval church. Unlike Celestine, he was deeply embedded in papal administration and diplomacy. He was immensely able and knowledgeable. He was also arrogant, old and inflexible. In the same way as air rushes in to fill a vacuum, with the end of the empire as a political force, it would be France that Boniface had to contend with. To understand all of that, we'll need to go back to France, I think, and see how the 13th century has been for her, and we'll do that next week. We can talk about Spain as well, and leave ourselves then at the edge of the mid-1350s, a good place to then draw the line under Edward II and set ourselves up for Edward III. So, thanks to everyone who comments on the website or iTunes or joins the Facebook group, and indeed to all of you for listening. On the iTunes thing, people write some absolutely lovely things, and it's slightly frustrating that unlike the website, there's no way of responding. But I read every single one, be assured. Actually, sometimes I read every one several times, which is a little sadder, but anyway, thank you. Finally, a string of donators to thank which is such a pleasurable chore. My grateful thanks to Don, Edson, Richard, Eric, Henry, is that the second time, Henry? Isabel, Mike and Russell. So, good luck everyone, and have a great week. <laughs>